Before today's Bloomcast, I just wanted to let you know that we ran into some technical gremlins, which almost meant we lost the entire conversation. We've managed to salvage it, but some of the audio from my microphone in particular is not great quality. This also means that you hear a bit less from me in this episode than usual, so, you know, every cloud. Anyway, I hope it doesn't ruin your enjoyment too much, and I'm happy to say that the gremlin has been identified and squashed, so we should be back to our crisp, hyper-real selves for episode six. Thanks for listening. When I published Ulysses by James Joyce in my little bookshop called Shakespeare and Company in Paris. Look, look, the dust is growing. My branches laugh large Stately, plump, buck bargain. All perfume, yes, and his heart was going like mad. And yes, I said yes, I will, yes. begin with a little bit of correspondence. I have an email here from Adam Gilbank. Uh, Adam sent in uh, a poem he'd written about Ulysses, which he didn't necessarily say whether we could read or not. So I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and say not. Um, But he also wrote in with a really interesting question. Here we go. A question for you guys is that because Ulysses is so discursive and chatty, do you think that it can capture the quiet moments of life, the, quote, pre-linguistic moments, or do they get swamped in text? Does Ulysses think the world is primarily textual, despite wanting to be a kind of universal book? Alice, next, your thoughts. I think that I would cite our previous discussions about machine consciousness, animal consciousness, and say that it is deeply interested in the gaps between words and what those gaps might look like. Um, and basically reinterpreting what we mean uh, when we say the word text. It reminds me of what you just said of a, of a story, uh, one of the jazz legends, uh, stories uh, attributed to Duke Ellington when he when uh, he had first heard Thelonious Monk, who was a kind of a rising young talent who played like no one else had ever played. And uh, someone said you know, to Duke, well, why, why did he think this guy, Thelonious Monk, was so special? And Duke said, well, anyone can play the notes. This guy plays the spaces. Mm. Um, so I think there's something. I think there's some of that here. That that it's the gaps, as you say, Alice, mm-hmm. that uh, that are the most revealing. Mm-hmm. Where Bloom stops, where Stephen stops on on the beach, and so there there is something, if not pretextual, there's something intertextual uh, um, that Joyce is uh, that Joyce is playing at. Well, maybe even supertextual in the sense that it seems to me that he's writing in a moment where the, his, the, his contemporaries are mired in text because they're so obsessed with this idea of the the revival of Irish language and so he's transcending uh, what, what we mean by text itself although I think one could also ask I think one could also argue that Joyce is obsessed with text himself and in a weird kind of way the world of Ulysses is one that sort of lives with the text and lives on the page so for example when we were talking about um, Lestragonians I believe we actually had letters the Healy's mm. advert marching through Dublin, through the town. And so I think there's definitely something, um, it's, it's almost like the Joyce is breaking the world down into its elements and the elements, at least the way he represents them. Yeah, Budget, yeah, right. I mean, Budgeon said that for, for Joyce, words were living things, right. right? And so this line between the, the, the word on the page and the creature in the world, I think Joyce is fundamentally uh, breaking down, right? That words, words come to life. 
and it puts me in mind as well mm. of the beginning of um, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man right, as well and like Stephen's memories his consciousness come through his first memories of sort of nursery rhymes and this kind of uh, childlike sort of not exactly gobbledygook but these sort of these early sort of pre-linguistic sounds uh, how how the consciousness of Stephen comes comes into I play. think this the final thing I would say is that this is a nice prelude in today's episode mm-hmm. Sirens because you ask is the world primarily textual and Adam and I and Lex will argue that it might in this episode be primarily sonic mm-hmm. and auditory mm. well you say I would argue that as the <laughs> The representative of the tone deaf. <laughs> but with a lovely voice, Adam, with a lovely voice. Anyway. <laughs> Dulcet uh, tones. tones. Um, do we have any more correspondence before we leave? We certainly do. I, w- I want to represent uh, the Instagram crowd. So, uh, so hello to Aaron Saunderson Cross, who reached out and says, Hi, Alice, the Bloomcast is great. And I've actually subscribed to Shakespeare and Co. so that I can continue reading Ulysses over the weekend. So great to hear from you, Aaron. And then I got a lovely email from Catherine Keys Guichard, who also got in touch with Lex and Adam. So a big hello to Catherine, uh, who writes, "What a perfect day to stay in and read." I couldn't agree with you more. You more. And just coming back to what Aaron Sonson Cross said about subscribing. Yes. Um, <laughs> if, if our listeners do want to get early access to the the episodes, if you subscribe to uh, the Shakespeare and Company podcast on iTunes, or if you subscribe to us through Patreon, um, you will get the entire episode on the day of the release of the first section. So uh, you'll get to hear all of the all of the readers uh, sometimes a week or two in advance of it. Right. Should we dive in? What do you think? Okay. So uh, it's four p.m. We're in the Ormond Hotel, uh, hotel bar. In fact, one of my favorite places to be, uh, and in fact, the place that I that I have um, been and uh, and enjoyed as as I'll, I'll maybe add in the noticeables after. So we're in the Ormond Hotel bar. Um, the first uh, women we see are the aforementioned sirens, the unattainable beauties, uh, the barmaids of the Ormond Hotel, Lydia Deuce and Mina Kennedy. Uh, Lydia Deuce back f- uh, fresh from her uh, ho- summer holiday or pre-summer holiday uh, with a, sun- a nice bronze suntans. We have the phrase bronze by gold and bronze uh, is Lydia Deuce, gold, the gold haired um, and only slightly less alluring uh, Mina Kennedy, uh, who is buddies with with Lydia Deuce and they and they spend uh, the chapter conniving with one another and performing um, uh, and flirting uh, in a professional barmaid style way with uh, with their uh, customers from behind their reef of counter, uh, as Joyce puts it. Um, we have Simon Dedalus, uh, Stephen's father, sauntering in uh, with uh, Lenahan and Ben Dollard, um, the quote unquote bass barrel tone. Um, not far behind. So these are two of, they just happen to be, two of the of the best singers uh, in Dublin, uh, along with Father Cowley, who's another uh, music fan, uh, as, we, as we find out. Um, and this, we now have a moment of crisis. Four o'clock is the moment where Blazes Boylan uh, has set his appointment with Molly Bloom, and where all three of them, Blazes Boylan, Molly Bloom, and uh, Leopold Bloom, know uh, that this is not just an appointment to practice music. This is an appointment where um, Blazes 
places Boylan will sleep with Bloom's wife. And so hanging over this episode is the question, what will Bloom do? Because now Blazes Boylan and Bloom are physically in the same space before um, uh, Blazes goes off uh, to Eccles Street. They are actually crossing paths in the Ormond Hotel. Blazes Blazes Boylan does not see Bloom, but Bloom uh, comes in with Richie Golding, uh, Stephen's uncle, uh, who is on the outs with Stephen's father, but who is a uh, kind of a chatty, friendly uh, lawyer type. And uh, he and Bloom uh, proceed to have a little uh, afternoon snack of liver and onions. And Bloom writes uh, a letter uh, somewhat half-heartedly to his um, uh, flirtatious love interest, uh, Martha. And in the meantime, Blazes Boylan uh, downs uh, a slow gin. He flirts with the barmaids. Lydia uh, shows off a little trick called sonner la cloche, uh, ring the bell, which involves um, picking up her garter uh, strap through her skirt and slapping it against her, her thigh to the great delight of the men present. Um, Blazes Boylan nods, winks, goes out the door uh, to see Molly. And, and then the music begins. So Bloom, and um, as he's considering what's happening, um, Blazes is going to his to his house. Uh, he's also listening to Simon Dedalus um, and uh, Ben Dollard sing. And so we're getting this, uh, this performance, this impromptu performance of, of two songs in particular, the aria Mapari uh, from a opera called Martha, coincidentally to Bloom's uh, love interest, and an Irish revolutionary song called The Croppy Boy. And the, the peak, the peak moment, the climactic uh, musical moment is uh, the high tenor uh, of Simon Dedalus hits the this note uh, in in Mapari, uh, come thou lost one, come thou dear one, uh, and it resolves. And so uh, the music of, of the episode uh, is uh, is its is its light motif, uh, and we'll we'll get into a bit of that. Um, uh, Bloom then exits the Ormond Hotel uh, as they're in the in the middle of the Irish Revolutionary song, uh, just as the blind stripling who Bloom has seen uh, earlier in the day and helped across the street. Uh, the blind stripling we find out is the piano tuner, and he comes back to find his uh, his lost uh, pitchfork that he's left on the piano at the Ormond Hotel. Um, Bloom is now back on the streets of Dublin and. Um, he has escaped just in time to make some own some of his own music uh, from his rear end, and so with a final toot, um, sirens uh, sirens is complete. Once again, the gut is being represented well, very quite well. <laughs> Thank you, Lex. Before we leap into a discussion of um, of the music from which I'm going to largely absent myself, um, as, as I said earlier, the representative of the, the tone deaf in this podcast. One point I would just like to make is that I would like to contend that this episode marks the moment that our training. By Joyce is over. Now, any listeners to this podcast may remember that um, Patrick Hastings and I think other Ulysses scholars have said that one thing that Joyce does very well is that although Ulysses is a difficult book to read, Joyce essentially trains you mm. how to read the book, uh, particularly in the early chapters. Um, now, I want to contend that this is the moment that the training is over and you are unleashed onto the battlefield of literature to fight for yourself. Okay. Now, what are, what is my evidence for this? Um, the first thing is the beginning of the chapter. Now, I'm sure Lex will come on to talk about this, but from what I understand it, the, the opening lines of this chapter are often interpreted as either the, the orchestra or the voices of the chapter warming up or tuning up for, for what is to come. Now, when, do, uh, when does that happen? It either happens at the beginning of a performance or it happens after the intermission. So one could think that the first part of the performance was... Uh, well, everything we've just gone through was in some way just preparation mm. for the overture for the beginning mm. or which I would like to argue 
the, the first half was the training, then we had an intermission, and now we're into, let's say, the, the main action, of, mm. or at least the main literary action of yeah. the book. And my evidence for why I think we've just had an intermission is actually appealing to Joyce's sense of mm. the ironic. Because if you notice from one episode to the other, up until this point, each episode has either gone forwards or backwards in time or mm. jumped from place to place. Mm. This is the only episode thus far, and I think in the entire book, to, to my memory, that begins exactly at the moment mm. that the previous episode, so Wandering Rocks, finishes. So with the, with the Viceregal Parade. Mm. Now, right, exactly. We see, the, we see the Viceroy passing in front of the Ormond Hotel. At the mm. Exactly. exactly. Mm. Right. Now, I, I, I would like to contend that Joyce, being the little trickster that he is, would only have used such a literary <laughs> device at a moment where actually he wanted to put an intermission. Wow. So there would only be sort of uh, continuity after a break. So that is my contention for why training is over. So from, from Adam, the literary theorist, to Alice, the long-suffering reader, from my perspective, uh, the training has really just begun. Um, I'd like to quote uh, Colleen here, who really captures the spirit with which I um, started and waded through this episode uh he writes the episode poses many problems for a reader for me it posed many problems for me negotiating the style its many transitions its play its obliqueness is difficult enough there is also a disconcerting sense that games are being played with the reader who is being teased and even taunted at times so he he cites a moment in the episode upholding the lid he in brackets who gazed in the coffin in brackets coffin at the triple uh, piano, in exclamation point. Um, there's a sense in which uh, he goes on to kind of argue, and I certainly felt this, that style is beginning to be foregrounded. Um, I felt lost in this, in this world, um, one in which complete sound is, is surrounding you. Uh, it kind of creates an ambiance, um, and anything prior to this... Um, seems easy frankly from from my position now don't get me wrong alice i said your training was over i didn't say you were ready to take to the battlefield <laughs> but i'm glad i'm glad you chose that passage though because we're going to come to that passage about the and you were going to see that there's maybe a little musical trick that uh, that mm. joyce is uh, that joyce is alluding to as well yeah well let's should we move on to that because as i say once again one more time and for the final time is represented the tone death what the hell is going on? What the hell is going on here? What the here? hell is going on here? Um, so Stuart Gilbert, who wrote one of the first studies of uh, Joyce's Ulysses called, uh, inventively, James Joyce's Ulysses, um, wrote uh, uh, in this episode on the sirens. I just picked up a copy of this book and it's the first time I'm reading it. Uh, Until his death, the first question Dubliners of Joyce's generation asked about the author of Ulysses was apt to run books. Uh, yes, of course, he's written some books, but how is his voice the story of Joyce's abandonment of this career, much to the chagrin of his Italian teacher who heard in him the promise of a future Doreski, uh, remains yet to be written. So uh, Joyce was, to those who knew him, uh, to many of those who knew him, a musician first and a tenor first, a singer first, uh, and, a, and a writer, a scribbler uh, second. And so... Um, you know, we can look at the sirens as this is Joyce, the musician, trying to bring music to life in a way that no one has ever done in literature before. Mm -hmm. um, so how does he do that? 
Um, well, I think first something you, that you had noticed, Adam, is that this is a chapter profoundly meant to be read aloud. Um, and so it, it taps also into the Irish uh, bardic tradition of, of, of reading poems aloud in stories. And that Joyce definitely intends when we begin with, you know, bronze by gold, heard the hoof iron, steely ring impertinent, right? That these are little bits of the, of the chapter to come. And surely also the Homeric tradition of oral storytelling. Exactly. And in fact, um, uh, there just in the last few decades has been some, some incredible work done um, in, in the Balkans uh, from oral storytellers who memorized, you know, huge amounts of uh, Milman Perry was, was the guy's, uh, guy's name, who um, uh, showed in, in, with reference to modern oral traditions how so many of the poetic devices were used as a, as a way of keeping the rhythm going and keeping the, the memory going and even buying time to come up with the next line because they were also inventing and improvising it as they went. So I think the oral part is, is really important and, and I recommend anyone reading this chapter to at least give a try, give a few minutes of, of reading it off the page and getting the rhythm of the words uh, uh, in, your, um, uh, in your mouth. So um, Where would you suggest a reader to go? Well, take us to a place okay. that you think is, is worthy okay. of being read aloud. Good. So I, I picked out a couple. Uh, in fact, th that these are picked out um, also by by Stuart Gilbert, who helpfully uh, points to some of the some of these cases. Um, so um, I'm going to go through just a little bit of uh, medieval music theory for for dummies here. Um, so for the last <laughs> for, the, for the last thousand years or so in the Western tradition, we have this thing called melody, and we have this thing called harmony. Right. Right. So so melody you think of as moving horizontally as we're moving our eyes across a page and mm. harmony. We look at a, a, a staff of music and we read it vertically. Now, of course, we don't read a story vertically, but since people like Shakespeare experimenting with the look of the words on the page. And Shakespeare not, uh, uh, notably did this in his sonnets where you see a word time on, in line three and then time again on line eight right underneath it. And you can read a sonnet vertically as well as horizontally. Joyce wants with these different voices, the voices of the barmaids, the voices of mm -hmm. the places Boylan and Bloom for, and, their, and their interpolation with each other for us to hear the harmony as well as the melody of this chapter. So let me give you a sense of, of how this works. So if, if you have this, this form of the fugue, what they, what they call fuga par canonum, um, you have different voices that are, have different names in music theory. The, uh, the first voice that comes in is called the subject. Then the second voice that comes in is called the answer. Third voice comes in, and usually the answer is about a fifth apart from the subject. And then you have the third voice that's called the counter subject. And then you have these variations called uh, divertimenti. So to see how this works, I, we're going to step into the Ormond Hotel right now and, uh, and join me at the piano. And uh, so here's a fugue <laughs> in C-sharp minor. Uh, just pretend, pretend. We're going on a flight of fancy here. Uh, a fugue in, uh, in C-sharp minor by, by Johann Sebastian Bach. And uh, it, it, it goes, I'll just play, play uh, two lines from it and then and I'll show you how it works. So in this fugue, you have the subject, which is da, 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 da. And then you have the answer, which goes up a fifth. And then you have the third voice coming in. And so this is a way that, that Bach is building harmonies, but he's not playing the chord, right? He's playing them one at a time. 
right? And so you hear them as melodies, but what is what is created from the sum of their parts in a rather democratic fashion, you could mm. say, um, is a, is a harmony, right? That mm. that none of the individual voices could do alone. So this is the this is the form of of the of the episode is is a fugue with the the barmaids. The, uh, the, the inner monologue of Bloom, uh, Blaze is Boylan as the counter subject, which is you know, counter to, to Bloom's consciousness. Uh, and then the songs, the divertimenti are Simon Dedalus, Ben Dollard, the songs of the aria, the mapari and, and the crappie boy. And then finally the tap, tap, tap um, of the stripling. So that's that's part number one, the few. The second bit, which is interesting, I think, is the sirens themselves. Now, the sirens from the Odyssey, of course, are these uh, alluring, beautiful, uh, but ultimately very dangerous uh, women who uh, uh, Circe warns uh, Odysseus and his men that if they hear the siren song, they will be so transported from themselves, they will lose all control and uh, and and uh, be be marooned on the on the on the rocks of of the reef of the sirens. And so and and, and so and so uh, Odysseus and his men take this so seriously that um, he stops up the ears of his men with wax and then orders them to tie him to the master of the vessel and order um, them to not release him no matter how much he protests um, as, as they pass the, the island of the sirens. Exactly right. And so um, so the sirens in, in this chapter have, have two names. And uh, I'm getting a little bit of a, of a clue from, from Gilbert here, but I took it one step further I want to share. Uh, with the world, so um, the Hello, the, world. <laughs> the 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 medieval uh, the first music theorists in Europe um, wrote down uh, what we call modes, which are which are like scales. So if you think of the C major scale, right, that um, from C to C, um, they uh, called the uh, Ionic mode, and then the same notes but just moved up one uh, one place was called the Dorian mode. Again, the same notes, but just moved up one, flate, one place. Was the Phrygian mode, and you could play songs in the Phrygian mode, or you could play songs in the Dorian mode. Lots of medieval songs were, were in, the, in the Dorian mode. Now, if you go up one more from there, you get the Lydian mode. And of course, one of our, of our two barmaids' is name is Lydia. So her name is Lydia. So the Lydian mode sounds like this, from F to F. And Father Cowley, um, during the, the beginning of the of the of the musical jam session, as it were, he calls for Simon Dedalus to sing the the great aria in one flat, which is people who don't know a lot of music theory, but they know how many flats or sharps are on the page. They say, "Hey, do it in one flat." Well, one flat is the key of F. So if you take the Lydian mode and you add the flat, it's. And there you have uh, the key of F major. Now F major has uh, what's called a, uh, a second chord that goes with it, that runs right next to it, runs right in parallel, and it's called the relative minor. It's the same notes, but just runs just next to it. Yep. What does this mean for the writing? What does this mean for the words on the page? Right, so, so this one is, is, a, is about the characters, right? So you have these two, the main characters, the sirens of the sirens, are Lydia and... Mina, we say Mina in in American English, but apparently the Irish call call this uh, this this person's name Mina. And so you have these women who aren't singing themselves, but they represent these two principles of of musical scales that go that go right next to each other. And 
So th that's just a little a little aside. Now we get to the figures of melody. So you were talking about, um, you know, what would it sound like to read these things uh, on the page? So um, on uh, my page 280, uh, Bald Pat, who's the waiter, comes in. Uh, Bald Pat, who is bothered, mitered the napkins. Pat is a waiter hard of his hearing. Pat is a waiter who waits while you wait. He, 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 he. He waits while you wait. He, he. A waiter is he. He, 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 he. He waits while you wait. While you wait, if you wait, he will wait while you wait. And so this is, a, a, um, if you listen to Mozart, this is, this is what you get with these kinds of variation right and and these are little figures that are are variations that he's that he's showing um uh on the page another one would be the the effect of staccato mm -hmm. so um if you this is my page 285 ventriloquize my lips closed think in my stomach what will you i want you to and so if you have like a, a melody so That's a kind of a staccato, a staccato melody uh, that he's alluding to with that, with that very tight um, uh, uh, syncopation uh, of the line. Actually, Anne Killeen makes this point. He says that, uh, sorry, I mentioned feeling like games were being played on me, the, the, the poor suffering reader. And he, he writes that games are not only being played with the reader, they're also being played with the characters, all of them. Bloom included are subjected to this treatment to a greater or lesser degree. They suffer such indignities as having their names foreshortened in the interests of musicality. Lid, D, Cow, Cur, Dole. Exactly, exactly right. Um, so he's he's taking liberties with with people's names and with and with these words. So just w one or two more here. So uh, on page two seventy seven, you get her wavy, heavy, 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 heavy hair uncombed, right? And this is very much like a. Right, mm -hmm. so it's a what's it called trillando uh, mm -hmm. in, in in opera, um, and finally the, the the passage you read, Alice, uh, with the with regard to the uh, the tuning fork. Mm -hmm. So upholding the lid, he who gazed in the coffin, coffin, at the oblique triple piano wires, and so uh, Gilbert says this is the effect of suspension. So if you have a chord that's a major chord, if you move that middle note up one, it's called a suspension. So Upholding the lid, he who gazed in the coffin, coffin oh. at the oblique triple piano wires oh, wow. with the with the exclamation point. So yes, these are these are little games, but they're fun games. I think those for those of us who who enjoy a little bit of the of the playing around with music. Um, and then the last, the very last thing I wanted to is the tension so resolution. Lovely. We're going we're going into uh, mm. this is a very sexual chapter with a mm. lot of correspondences with uh, with with the, the erotic. And um, the the last little music theory thing is the is the play between dominant and tonic. So a dominant chord is the five chord. So one, four, five, one, and the dominant is the five. And often with a seven that wants to resolve back to the one. So you build this tension. And um, in blues, for example, in 12-bar blues, there's no such thing as blues without a dominant chord. So if you, uh, I was listening to uh, Robert Johnson, the Mississippi uh, Delta blues guy, um, who has a song called Ramblin' Blues. So it starts in the one, and then it goes to the four, and then it goes to the five, and then back to the one. So if you hear it, it's like, I got rambling, rambling on my mind. I got rambling, rambling on my mind. I hate to leave you, baby, but you treat me so unkind. Right, 
right? So the the, the dominant is is utterly important to bring it back to the to the to the home to go back home. You go away. The dominant takes you as far away as you can, and then literally as far away from you can as you can from the tonic, and then back. No and so you get this effect in uh, in when uh, Simon Dedalus is singing in two seventy six uh, uh, the the, um, the 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 final uh, bit of the of the of the aria, which I just will. It soared, a bird, it held its flight, a swift, pure cry, soar, silver orb, it leaped serene, speeding, sustained to come, don't spin it out too long, long breath, he breathed long life, soaring high, high resplendent, aflame, crowned high in the effulgent, and it's just like, you're you're so suspended mm. in this dominant, crowned high in the effulgent, symbolistic high of the ethereal bosom, high of the high, vast irradiation everywhere, all soaring around about the all, the endlessness, ness, ness. To me, right? And so it resolves finally from the aria back to the tonic. So that's the last thing I wanted to show. Um, We can close the piano and go back to our regularly scheduled programming. Thank you, Lex. Thank you so much. And I think the most remarkable thing about that from my perspective is that, you know, it felt like, you know, sometimes when people explain quantum mechanics to you and, you know, I I know in five minutes time, I'm going to leave and won't be able to explain any of this to anybody else. But while you were explaining that, I felt I understood it. And Mm. for that... Mm. I want to thank you. Mm. Well, it's great. Let's raise our glasses to that, I think. Cheers, Cheers guys. Cheers. I think um, this point about collapsing uh, of tension is a really interesting one because it seems to me that there are two other moments where this happens. The first is when um, Bloom's elastic band that he's been playing with snaps in a very kind of uh, deflated and, and mundane moment of the collapse of tension. And then the second moment of course is is the fart at the end of the episode which is described as the coda can you explain sounds very proper when you say it (laughs) the fart (laughs) and then the final the final larger sense of the collapse of tension is and this is a point that budgen made is that sirens was written towards the end of 1918 which of course is coming to the end of, of the first world war so there's this actual almost collective sense of relief of tension in the yeah, in the good. world writ large mm-hmm. very good there's there's um, a little moment here about the uh, the the tuning fork um and so gilbert puts in the midst of this musical enthusiasm the dialogue of melody and accompaniment there's one instrument trustiest of all and odysseus with his ears open on the perilous voyage past the sirens isle that does not play the tuning fork the conscience of the episode, an emblem this of Mr. Bloom. Among these eccentrics, enthusiasts, patriots, braggarts, he alone stands for the norm of humanity, homo would-be sapiens. <laughs> so thanks, thanks to her Gilbert, a, 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 new, a new arrival in the Bloomcast. Uh, departing from this fantastic sonorous world of music, one way out is to pose the question, what do we need to know about the relationship between music and drink? And so we had asked in the Lotus Eaters, what are your narcotics? And it seems to me that music is playing a similar role here in the sense that they're in a bar, they're drinking, um, they're getting drunk. And th- th- it's noted at one point that Mr. Dedalus sings of a heart bowed down, but he's singing is also a means of relieving uh, grief um, and the only kind of other available means to alleviate this grief is possibly through drink. Um, and there's another moment where Bloom becomes kind of skeptical of the power of music, which is, as as Lex, as you heard in Lex's enthusiasm, so powerful. He says, music gets on your nerves. And then at another moment, 
uh, Cowley is described as stunning himself with music, a kind of drunkenness. So I think there is a parallel to be drawn out here between the uh, effect of music and the effect of alcohol. I think that's right. Um, and I think that they're all kind of um, these things that, that bring us out of ourselves. Sure. And in, in moderation, one of the great pleasures and joys, they are among the great pleasures and joys of life, but when pushed too far, right? Either in the case of the singing to this nostalgia, Father Cowley is lost in this nostalgia for the for the great Irish revolutionary past. Um, you know, Blazes Boylan obviously is, is you know, completely a, a, a slave to his own sexual desires uh, and, and need, need to conquer. Um, and and then drink. I mean, there there mm. there's so much drunkenness in this book, and we see how destructive it is to families and uh, and etc. But um, to to spend a little bit of a moment on the on the joy, um, you know, th- this is I think the sexiest chapter um, in Ulysses. Um, when but but there's no sex in it, right? The sex is implied, right? So as with and this, I think Joyce is teaching us something a little bit about. Uh, about sexual attraction, that imp- implication is is sexier than um, than bearing it all. Uh, le le, le non dit. Le non dit. Um, so when when the when the women um, the barmaids are are laughing to each other, they're actually making fun of the old men, these kind of awkward old men passing by, um, and uh, and then laughed more. Greasy I know, exhausted, breathless, their shaken heads they laid, braided and pinnacled by glossy combed against the counter ledge, all flushed, oh, panting, sweating, oh all breathless oh saints above miss do said sighed above her jumping rose i wish i hadn't laughed so much i feel all wet and then when later when bloom uh when bloom hears the uh, the song um this is the the tenor voice of simon dedalus um bloom flood of warm jim jam lick it up secretness flowed to flow in music out in desire dark to lick flow invading tipping her tepping her tapping her topping her top pours to dilate dilating the joy the feel the warm the to pour o'er sluices pouring gushes flood gush flow joy gush tup throp now language of love um so I hope there's some blushes out there because these are some of the sexier lines that I've that I've read. <laughs> Adam has Adam has passed out. I forgot on the I, floor. I podcast with two English people. I should know better than to be reading this smut. You know, I, I in some ways in some ways uh, I'm going to disagree with you because I think that while this is is highly charged sexually, um, I feel disappointed that the sirens which are so powerful in the Odyssey. I mean, the men literally have to stuff wax on their ears and, and men have to be tied up because they're so attractive. Here, the attempts uh, of sexual um, prowess and kind of seduction of Miss Lydia Deuce and Miss Mina Kennedy don't work. I mean, hmm. they, they try and seduce uh, Blazes Boyon yeah. and he is he's aroused, but not by them, and he, he leaves. Mm. And so I, I, feel, I feel saddened by these characters because their sexuality is not as powerful as it is in the Odyssey. No, the, the language is much more powerful than their own kind of sexual experience, you yeah, could say. Yeah. But also, um, I'll come back to that point I made one or two episodes ago about one way of looking at Ulysses is as an anti-Odyssey. And mm. so in, in the same way that, you know, Bloom is not Odysseus, in this case, the sirens are not, you know, our, our barmaids are not the sirens. Not the sirens, right. Well, yeah. right. And, and um, you know, he's very sensitive to... The, the sadness and especially the sadness of women. I mean, even these two beautiful young women who are, you know, uh, attractive to all, 
Miss Kennedy sauntered sadly from bright light, twining a loose, ta- loose hair behind an ear, sauntering sadly gold no more. She twisted, twined a hair. Sadly, she twined in sauntering gold hair behind a curving ear. It's them has the fine times. Sadly, then she said. Well, he's sad, right? And and this and this kind of gets to the question of why does Bloom let Boylan get away with it? Maybe in part because he's dwelling in his sadness. He writes to his lover <laughs> of sorts, of sorts, his epistolary lover. He writes, "I feel so sad today, so lonely." Uh, and there's this great description, kind of again, it, it sounds sonorous now that I'm reading it. By rose, by satiny bosom, by the fondling hand, by slops, by empties, by popped corks. Greeting in going past eyes and maidenhair bronze and faint gold and deep sea shadow went bloom, soft bloom. I feel so lonely, bloom. Hmm. No, he's he's deeply, deeply sad uh, and yet transported momentarily um, by this by this music um, and trying to distract himself from this this crisis that he is in a sense allowing to happen. So this is the question, right? Why does he allow it to happen? He could have very easily said, and he says even to himself, I could pretend I left something at home. He could go back and just walk in the door, <laughs> right? And without even confronting Boylan, without saying, hey man, what are you doing with my wife? He he could he could stop this from happening. And the question is why doesn't he? I, I take issue with the could there because I'm not entirely sure he could. Well, this is his conclusion. And in the same way, and this goes against what I was just saying about it being an anti, uh, an, an, an anti Odyssey. But uh, in the same way that that uh, Odysseus cannot stop the attention of the suitors being directed towards Penelope. I mean, he he has the the fortune, you might say, of, uh, of having a wife who does not um, does 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 not submit to the the suitors. But you know, there is a physical distance that uh, that Odysseus is unable to cross. I think there is a psychological distance, an emotional distance in the relationship between Bloom and Molly that the Bloom is, is, is physically, psychologically, emotionally incapable of crossing. I don't think it's even an option for him to be able to, to go back and interrupt it. Even if he comes up with these theories, oh, I could go back and interrupt it. I think he knows deep down that there's something. And, and, and yet maybe this is what makes him so brilliant in some ways it's it's this detachment that allows him to escape the things that other people are succumbing to i mean this is this is the point of the episode in the odyssey they they don't submit to the sirens and it might be this might be kind of at the center of of bloom's character the fact that he doesn't succumb to the music like people around him the fact that he doesn't succumb to psychic pain uh of the the fact that um, his wife is having an affair, um, the fact that he keeps uh, distance and remains um, with kind of dignity as this is happening, as as there's exuberance swirling around him. Yeah, and and I think um, I think I agree with you, Adam, and I disagree with you. I agree with you that um, he does realize he can't stop this from happening, and he says literally, "As easy stop the sea." Mm-hmm. And but what you said about this this signaling a, a deep gap or, or chasm, I think the reader we're supposed to ask that question: How deep is the division? And they they've lost a child, one of the worst things that could ever happen to a couple. They they lose their their son Rudy <clears throat> at ten days old, and uh, and this has created a a, um, a rift. And but we know we know from all of Bloom's inner monologue that he's thinking about his wife all the time. Mm. He loves her dearly, and as we will find out later, um, in, a, in the most touching way, she also loves him. And so, you know, Kyber Declan Kyber, um, 
who uh, he remarks upon this this also this this line about the sea. Uh, hours later, Molly will use the same image of the sea to explain her adventure. So this line in Sirens, which seems to record their sundering, says Professor Kybert, carries also a suggestion that the blooms are married not just in law, but in the profound depths of a shared imaginative life. Um, so you know, I think there's a possibility here that Bloom knows that if he wants to ultimately reconcile with his wife, uh, confronting her lover is not going to work. Stopping her, uh, pretending that she doesn't have this desire is not going to work. Uh, and it's not in his nature, right? He is anti-authoritarian. He's anti-control of, of others. Um, and I think he also realizes at a deeper level that he's partly responsible for this affair. Mm-hmm. And, and to take responsibility is to do the opposite of to try to dominate um, and, and to conquer. It's to understand the interconnectedness of your actions with other people's actions. And so I think that's why his reaction isn't uh, to challenge Blaze's Boyle into pistols at dawn, but but in fact to to let this happen in the short term with the hope that, that a reconciliation can be that achieved. Is, that is so lovely. <laughs> so should we move on to some noticeables um, before... Um before getting getting into it. Yes, Adam, what did you notice? What did you notice? Um, it's just one thing, and this again, okay, I said I wasn't going to refer to myself as tone deaf again, but I'm going to do it one more time. I didn't pick up, or I, I had a sense that there was something musical going on, but I didn't have any real experience of that uh, while while reading um, while reading this chapter until until your explanation there, Lex, which has really, has really clarified a lot for me. But one thing that did occur to me was how cinematic this chapter is. And I think the most cinematic so far and i'm thinking specifically of the kind of what might be described of described as cross cuts Mm -hmm. so you have um you have bloom you have the people in the bar and you have blazes boiling and you have the uh the blind stripling and the chapter the action cuts between them in a way that i would contend would have been impossible for readers to understand before the invention of cinema Mm. Um, because this is this is something just, just being invented as he's writing Ulysses. Well, this is it. So this sent me down a bit of a, an internet mm. rabbit hole. I was just wondering if there was a connection between Joyce and cinema, uh, whether it was an, influ- an acknowledged influence on him or not. And then I just <laughs> the Volta Electric Theatre in Dublin, first dedicated cinema in Ireland, opened in 1909 by James Joyce. We cut to Adam 11 p.m. in front of his computer, <laughs> tap, tap, yelping, tap, tap, tapping like the blind stripling. <laughs> That is not a scene. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, it's so, so clearly cinema was having an effect on Joyce aesthetically and on what I think he could expect from readers. Um, and just to take it one step further, because then it got me thinking a few years ago, I was quite, um, quite obsessed with the work of Charlie Chaplin. And it suddenly occurred to me that there are lines to be drawn between Bloom and The Tramp. And these are more or less two contemporaneous creations as mm. well. I think physically there's something, mm. there's something going on. There's the mm. sort of, you know, the the, the baggy trousers. That the everyman was also comic. The comic everyman, exactly. And seemingly, um, Joyce had seen Chaplin perform in the musical before he went on to become a film star and before he um, he, he invented the tramp. Chaplin's films were, sh- were shown and were very popular at the Volta Electric Theatre, and. So I wanted to find out if anybody had made this connection before. There are several academic papers about Bloom and Chaplin and the Tramp, 
which I didn't have access to because I don't have a JSTOR account. So if anybody out there has read them, do write in Lucy's at JSTOR. One of the best days of my life was when JSTOR followed the American Library Comparison on Twitter. I have two points uh, to respond. The first one, you know who loved a tramp? Samuel Beckett. <laughs> Go go and Didi, two of the greatest tramps in literature. Vladimir and Estragon. The second point is is just to push Adams and various academics point even further that a kind of famous line from this episode is Bloom sitting in the hotel and observing to himself, sit tight there, see, not be seen. Mm. Is that not the experience of any cinema goer? Very good. In, in marked contrast to everything else during the during the novel, which is out in display in public, you know, in the street. So that's that's uh, and and Charlie Chaplin, of course, memorably, I um, that that was it called the Little Dictator, the Dictator, uh, the, great dictator. the Great Dictator, and and he at the end has this fantastic um, speech, you know, where he gives um, a, a kind of a, a a pian to a hymn to to humanism and and uh, and peace and nonviolence, uh, which is pretty much what we're just about to uh, have uh, in chapter 12. My little noticeable that I, I just wanted to share um, was just a little memory of June 16th, uh, 2004, where I had only read the book once and um, was a you know, snot-nosed 24-year-old um, tagging along uh, with my father to Bloomsday in Dublin. And uh, we sort of separated for a couple hours in the afternoon uh, to go to different little um, uh, Ulysses pilgrimages. I ended up in the, in the Ormond Hotel. And I can only describe this as the the most magic unplanned moment that that if it had been in America would have been completely ruined. You know, someone would have you know made a gift shop or a, or you know tried to stage this whole you know. It was actually people walked into the Ormond Hotel at four o'clock and just stood around in this sort of large circle, and sort of looked at one another, and no one knew what was going to happen next until someone began to sing. Mm. Spontaneously. Spontaneously. And there was no there was no order to it. Mm. There was no leader of it. And one by one we started singing. And mm. and people went around and I said to myself, Wow, this wow. is this is what it would have felt like a hundred years ago mm. on that day, listening to uh the bass barrel tone, Ben Dollard and, and Simon Dedalus. And so I said, Well, I have to sing something. And the only thing I could think of was singing <laughs> Down by the Sally Gardens, um, which I'd known a little bit from watching the Yell Whiffenpoofs uh, group I did not get into, but uh, I remember there one <laughs> indeed and and sang um, and uh, and remembered this version of this Yeats poem set to music, mm-hmm. and so I sang down by the Sally Gardens, and I fumbled the words like a drunk Irishman hundred years ago maybe would have done, and um, and but no one noticed, and I contributed to this little moment of song oh. that um, that will stay with me uh, till the end of so my th- days. This is actually uh, a question that I had throughout your performances, which is how do you think Joyce reconciled on the one hand this highly schematized controlled version of music and on the other hand the improvisational spontaneous version of music and how does that how does he reconcile that on the page how does he allow space for the improvisational uh and and spontaneous while also sticking to the schema well this is this is a great question Alice. this is what this is what great singers thanks this is what great singers find a way to do in, in arias right so and and mozart and and puccini would write in these moments where you would have what's called a cadenza where in the in the actual script of the of the of the musical piece would be a moment where the soloist can do what they like within the theme of the the song um, and other moments where they can hold out the note of fermata. It's called a fermata. You can hold out 
cut the note a little longer and you choose where, when to end it. Mm. Um, and then, of course, the little trills, these are that we that we saw before, the, the trillando, these are little embellishments mm. that allow a singer or a soloist to put themselves, to put their individuality in, so, uh, into, into the performance. So how does, how does one do that on the page? Is that possible? I think every novelist has their, I mean, it's, 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 it's freeing yourself from the forms of the past and doing something different, right? That's the, that's the ultimate um, challenge of, of writing a great book is um, what is your voice? Where is your voice in this book? As opposed to just your, the voice of your influences. Sure. Um, sure. And, yeah, uh, yeah. and these, and these little trills, these little, uh, these little f- uh, figures, I think are, uh, you know, our Joyce, our Joyce, the musician um, working through, uh, working through Joyce, the novelist. And in some sense, you know, Adam, talked about how as a reader you're going through a kind of training um reading the book and and maybe you have the same experience as a writer right because you train on all your influences and then at a certain point you do have to break free of them and it's it's only through the training it's only through the the performance of the mozart that you can actually begin to express yourself in these small gaps and essentially you the portrait of the artist as young man or woman is is the expansion of these gaps until you've shared all of these past experiences. I think that's right. And in, in music, I mean, 20th century music is full of examples like this. Yeah. You know, Jimi Hendrix started as the rhythm guitarist in an R&B band before mm. being the most, you know, disruptively incredible guitarist, uh, I think, of, of the century. Mm. Uh, Charlie Parker, Thelonious Monk started as musicians yeah. in big bands before they then formed their combos, their trios. So you have to, yeah, you have to train, you have to master the forms as they exist before you can depart and find your own voice. Which is, uh, Shakespeare did this. I mean, if you read his earliest play, Titus Andronicus he is so uh under the influence of Marlowe to the point where it's I think it was called like Marlowe's thunderous verse or or something like this and and there's there's a famous passage right at the beginning where it I mean he's he's just reprising Marlowe word for word not even word for word rhythm 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 for rhythm I mean it's he's and he'll he'll shed him when he dies right and actually this is a nice segue into Cyclops, um, which I have been tasked to summarize because one of the important notes uh, to make about Cyclops is that um, Joyce, to to our to the point of our discussion, is parodying pa- is is creating parodies of uh, thirty three different inherited influences. Let's say of style. So we ready for Cyclops, team? Ready. Let's do it. <laughs> so Cyclops, um, the two important points. To note before one starts to even think about the plot of Cyclops is the first note is the episode is narrated by an unidentified character. Nameless one. Whose voice dominates the action, but whose name is never mentioned. No man. The second point is that the episode is punctuated by a number of passages which are vast expansions of material already narrated or occasionally anticipating material written in the form of parodies of various styles of public discourse. There are 33 parodies in total, including, I'm going to list some of the ones that you might Mm. find, style of legal documents, the Irish heroic legend, style of flowery 19th century translations of Homer and other heroic epics, Victorian versions of Greek legends, theosophical type accounts of spiritualist seances, popular versions of medieval romances, genteel 19th century fiction, flowery sports journalism styles, uh, newspapers accounts of natural disasters and biblical prose. So many different 
uh, meditations on style find their way into. Let's not forget the tree wedding. That nineteenth-century <laughs> journalistic kind uh, of the of the wedding of the trees, uh, which is one of my favorites. Let, let's not forget. So, so onto the action. Uh, we begin as this unnamed one meets Joe Hines, the journalist who we've met before at the funeral and in the newspaper office, and they go together to Barney. Thank you, Barney Kins, Little Britain Street. Uh, They go to a pub where they meet several other people, including a character called The Citizen, who is presented as the caricature of a belligerent, dogmatic Irish nationalist. We meet to his dog called Gary Owen. Not even his dog, his borrowed dog, (laughs) Gary Owen. From there, uh, discussion takes place uh, about the so-called Irish question, which is essentially what is Iron Ireland's long and tumultuous relationship to England. Uh, this is pub talk. And as the pub talk begins, the citizen spots Bloom pacing up and down outside the pub, convinces him to come in. Uh, the conversation flows. Uh, they talk about the, this kind of group of men, talk about the ghost of Paddy Dingham, the speech of Gary and the dog, the merits of Gaelic sports. Blazes Boylan comes up. The revival of Irish language, of course, comes up. And this all of this swirling conversation becomes more heated as we observe Bloom, goaded by the citizen, into possibly his most passionate and spirited moment in the book. Hmm. Again, so I've been told. Um, <laughs> as, he insert, as he asserts his Irish identity and alludes to the Jewish persecutions that are happening in North Africa at the same time, um, he's challenged to stand up to the injustice with force like men and as uh, characteristically he responds to this challenge by changing tack rather than seeing force, hatred, history all uh, as life for men and women he inserts in uh, possibly another one of the most beautiful passages in the book that the very opposite of that con- constitutes life um, is love otherwise known as the opposite of hatred. He leaves briefly after making this remark, and in his absence, uh, more attacks <laughs> are made against him, talking about uh, his race, talking about his sexual relationships. Um, he then briefly reappears, uh, but it continues to be further attacked, specifically by the now very drunk and very anti-Semitic citizen. Um, and so he's ushered out of the pub by Martin Cunningham into a coach. At this point, the back and forth has become so heated that a crowd has gathered to observe the rising tempers as these two men are exiting the pub. (laughs) Bloom leaves, shouting out large claims on behalf of the Jews, including that Christ was a Jew. Mm. This makes the citizen really angry, so he runs back into the pub, grabs... This fact makes (laughs) the citizen very angry. Grabs a a Jacob's biscuit box that he throws at Bloom just as the car is leaving, and indeed, even the borrowed dog, Gary Owen, pursues the car like, I quote, bloody hell, as it turns out of Little Britain Street. Like a shot off a shovel. Like a shot off a shovel. Um, thank you for that. that was a great, great recap. Yeah. Thank you. Um, this is, Thanks, guys. This is this is um, my, my favorite chapter in Ulysses, mm. um, or tied tied with with uh, Ithaca. I I think there's no better time right now. We're living in a time where war is coming into Europe, um, and here. we it's should pers- think very it's seriously. It's it's here, and um, and. The theme of this of this chapter is the the one eyed and the two eyed. Yeah. Um. And uh, how do we 
live in a in a one-eyed in a world full of one-eyed people especially yeah. one-eyed men yeah. um who are often drunken and violent and small-minded mm-hmm. but very passionate and often have the power to uh to shape world events um and bloom i think we'll see shows us a a different way of being a being in the world um but uh there are there are big monsters in this episode it's really important uh to highlight to the the parallels with the odyssey because um so this is book nine of the odyssey and odysseus describes his adventures among the one-eyed cyclopses mm. who are giants i'm quoting giants louts without a law to bless them they live in a fertile land but are ignorant of agriculture they have no muster and no meeting no consultation or old tribal ways but each one dwells in his own mountain cave dealing out rough justice to wife and child indifferent to what others do it's very important to keep that in mind as we encounter the citizen um, because he almost directly maps onto this description of the cyclopses and and odysseus um just to kind of complete complete the 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 homeric side odysseus um finally has to confront a do or die situation where he and his men are trapped in the cave of Polyphemus, the the, the Cyclops, and their only escape um, is to blind the Cyclops as he's sleeping. They get him, they get him drunk on their on their nice Greek uh, wine, and they blind him in his sleep. And then uh, when he's in the morning, uh, getting his sheep uh, his sheep out of the out of the cave, the men uh, hold under these I guess practically very large sheep um, uh, and and escape. Uh, but it involves it involves trickery uh, and it involves taking turning a one eyed creature into a zero eyed uh, creature and getting out the door. How big were? If anyone knows the answer to that question, how big were the sheep? How no? How big were the sheep in ancient, ancient (laughs) Greece? How tiny were these? Were these Greek soldiers? Um, Adam Savage, who is a a YouTube um, Ulysses uh, 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 videocaster, you know, commented on that fact and actually found some great videos of little kids riding sheep. So um, I I, I will put that in the show notes. I hope uh, um, uh, Adam Savage's uh, uh, synopsis of of the of the Cyclops episode. Um, I want to hear from Adam Biles. Yeah, I want to hear, yeah. let's see. Let's get some other Adams going on. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, so we're so we're. I think we, maybe the first question we should ask is, you know, who are the Cyclops? We talked now about the Homeric Cyclops. What do we understand to be the Cyclops or the gigantic monsters uh, in Barney Kiernan's pub? Um, before we get into the pub, I actually think there's something. I think we need to talk about the gigantic monsters of literature, mm. actually, because I think there is um, a. I suppose these days we would probably call it a hyperrealism rather than a giganticism to the way this text is written. Whether it's the um, the parodic conversations, I guess that um, that the nameless one is is recounting, which you know are written at a pitch which there's a cert- there's a certain realism to it, but there's also a sort of a level of kind of high comedy there. Oh, it's hilarious. And on the other side, the the kind of the the, the, the digressions are satirizing all these various styles, as you mentioned in your in your introduction, Alice. And this this seems to me to prefigure a lot of the the writing that would come in the next few decades. I mean you think of somebody like a French writer like Louis Ferdinand Céline, you know, I think there's this kind of this sense of taking uh taking the everyday and turning it into to something massive and giant and grotesque in order to convey 
the mm. intensity of the emotions and the experience is connected to it. Maybe, maybe we just give an illustration for, for, for our listeners here. So the, the shift between the voices that Adam's talking about here. Three pints, Terry, says Joe. And how's the old heart, citizen, says he. Never better, Achara, says he. What, Gary, we're going to win, eh? And with that, he took the old bloody old Towser by the scruff of the neck, and by Jesus, he near throttled him. The figure seated on a large boulder at the foot of a round tower was that of a broad-shouldered, deep-chested, strong-limbed, frank-eyed, red-haired, freely-freckled, shaggy-bearded, wide-mouthed, large-nosed, long-headed, deep-voiced, bare-kneed, brawny-handed, hairy-legged, ruddy-faced, sinewy-armed hero. And then it goes on to describe the hero. From his girdle hung a row of sea stones, which dangled at every movement of his portentous frame. And on these were graven with rude, yet striking art, the tribal images of many Irish heroes and heroines of antiquity. Cahullin, Khan of Hundred Battles, Neil of Nine Hostages, Brian of Kincora, the Andre Malachi, Art McMurrah, Shane O'Neill, Father John Murphy, Owen Rowe, Patrick Sarsfield, Red Hugh O'Donnell, Red Jim McDermott, S. Fursa, Theobald Wolftone, the Rose of Castile, the Man for Galway, the Man Who Broke the Bank at Monte Carlo, etc. Right. So he he takes these these forms that are in themselves, you know, venerable, you know, the old forms of Irish poetry and epic, and just blows them up. I mean, takes them into these outlandish, ridiculous lengths. So these literary forms are one-eyed monsters in themselves, right. in a sense, because we've got sort of, of, of the two extremes. Mm. We have the kind of the one-eyed monster of pub talk, this kind mm. of reductivist politics, which we'll get onto in a bit, and then the one-eyed monster of form writing, kind of genre writing, and of which we have many different yeah, and, and in fact, Adam Adam Savage in this uh, in this little vid- video uh, that I saw on YouTube put, put, says that each of these digressions are kind of like a lens. And I really like that idea that that as you say, Adam, that these that these are these are one eyed ways of looking at the world. That again, in themselves, they're not um, you know evil or wrong. They're just incomplete. And by blowing them up, by taking them to their outrageous limit. Um, you, you, reductio ad absurdum. You, you see, right. uh, you see how uh, partial they are, mm-hmm. right? They're not bad. They're just one way of looking at the world. Well, it's also, I think, maybe a reflection on what happens with the passage of time, because it's only uh, as we as we have distance from these big figures like Goliath. Uh, Dante, Charlemagne, Michelangelo. So these are the figures. And these lists of the names. The the list of the names. I mean, these people, William Shakespeare, Tristan and Isolde, are placed right next to people like Thomas Cook and Son, the first Prince of Wales. (laughs) The man who broke the bank at Monte Carlo. Adam Adam and Eve, Herodotus, uh, Giant, uh, Jack the Giant Killer. I mean, it's, it's, it's funny in one sense, but it's also saying, you know, what happens to somebody somebody, what happens to their body of work, what happens to their ideas as we get further and further away from them. I mean, in the sense that you, it does become kind of reductionist. You read Dante for, you know him for the Inferno, you know Shakespeare for Hamlet, you know Herodotus for his histories. Um, and so com- by complete contrast, what happens when you spend 24 hours very intensely with someone as opposed to, you know, 24 thousand uh years away from them mm. it's 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 the juxtaposition i think of these two perspectives and it's a sense of leveling as well which we talked the about great before. leveling yeah mm. uh, i mean you put me in mind of the the final title card of um stanley kubrick's barry Lyndon, uh, which <laughs> says something along the lines of you know these all the characters in this film all the characters in this story uh lived fought etc etc they're all equal now mm. like there's this kind of great equalizing in, mm. uh, in, e- equalizing yeah. equalizing and combining right i mean yeah. what what do we see in in the same in the same period in in art we said last time of painters that are trying to paint the same thing from multiple angles at the same time right so this is kind of a cubist yeah. this is sort of a cubist another extension of joyce's 
cubism and i think i don't know if picasso thought seriously about democracy but i know that that joyce that joy he must have in this chapter or at least about the value of of a humane uh, and open and tolerant society against uh, nationalist uh, uh, bigotry and and uh, and war, of course, which he was living through as himself a refugee from Trieste, uh, forced to leave his home in Trieste and go to Zurich during the First World War. So Joyce knew, knew more than certainly than more than I do about what it's like to to live in the middle of a war. Uh, and this chapter, I think, is his best and most shining and wonderful uh, statement against. All the forces that produced World War One and ultimately mm. produced all mm. the catastrophes, whose consequences we are still living through today. I think somebody uh, who's I listened to this great podcast very short this morning. Um, conversation between Colm Tobin and Merve Emra. It's on BBC Radio Four. You can find it online. Um, we'll put it in the show notes. Uh, but uh, both Emra and Tobin picked the passage. Um, that I kind of alluded to in my in the description about love. I mean, the opposite of hatred. Mm-hmm. Out of the whole book, they mm-hmm. both pick that as their as yeah. their favorite passage. Mm-hmm. Um, and Torvin makes the argument, uh, kind of to this point about the flatness or staleness of of language. He says um, this is where Bloom gets to speak his truth essentially in a strange context. So this is pub talk. This is quick talk. Mm. Um, all of these people surrounding him are nationalists. They're all in agreement. There's a kind of staleness to their to their speech. They've said this before. They're talking in circles. They're talking in cliches. Uh, they're talking about what the nameless one calls nice old phenomena. Uh, and at this point, and you could argue, and, and both Toybean and Emra make this argument, that this is the culmination. This is, this is the climax of the novel because this is Bloyce... Um, Joyce by way of Bloom saying something true this is him saying something he hasn't said before um, this is a moment in which Toybean says that his mind comes up against much duller minds and it's basically he's making an argument about openness against insularity and but what if no one wants to play what if no one wants to play along I mean this is what 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 keeps occurring to me as, as we read this Adam mm. and Alice is like it's how how can any one of us individually seeing the example of Bloom who is is empathetic he's talking about nonviolence and love and and trying to look at things from um from multiple points of view and yet he's in a society of of these drunken idiots right and and um i think part of it maybe goes back to what we said a couple episodes ago about men and women right i mean one of the big problems and declan kyber points this out is that without when a society is out of balance and when women are put away you know, in, in into the home, and men are dominating the public space and the public sphere. You get disaster, right? And we're living in a in a world in a year right now where one man, you know, bare chested uh, authoritarian, um, is has radically changed the lives of of millions of people. So I mean, so then might the question be is why instead of making Bloom more feminine. Why not portray women as as stronger characters in in the book? I, I I sort of think I mean you'll you'll tell us what you think, but I I sort of think that when we get to Molly's voice, it's one of the strongest voices in the book, um, if not the the strongest and most compelling. Um, not necessarily you know the most erudite like Stephen, but the the richest and and most mm. uh, compelling. I yeah. think so. And it concludes, and she literally has the last word. The last yeah. word of the book is is a woman. Yeah. Which which, but you'll tell us what you think. It's it's so it's. I mean, he he he's taking a risk by by I think portraying women 
in the way that he has so far and and waiting for so long before he uh announces the arrival of of this strong woman but he hasn't really portrayed them a great deal i think this mm. is one of the one of the um things that we keep coming up against is that a lot mm. of these scenes are scenes of men between men and this is maybe something i think lex you talked about in the previous episode of, you know this was to a certain extent how life probably was at Turner, in the turn of the century Dublin. You know, it was a yeah. very traditional, very patriarchal, male-oriented society. Mm-hmm. And so any sort of sense of kind of public uh, interaction, or most of them, mm. would have been, to yeah. a large extent, between them. I think that's right. So, But maybe we, we, can, we can loop back to what we said about one-eyed and two-eyed. Yeah. So, so what does it mean to be two-eyed, right, as a, as a, as a citizen? I think we see that Bloom is actually a much better citizen in every respect than the citizen capital C. That sounds C. like it's like a one-eyed thing to say there. <laughs> well, I'll, let me let me make let me make my argument and then in a democratic fashion you can refute or or amend my argument. Um, but my 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 um my sense of of what Bloom has to teach us in 2022 uh, about uh, about being being a citizen it comes back to those first two words on the very first page when he looks at his cat in the morning cooking at breakfast kindly curiously if we had a society of people who were kind to each other and curious about each other's point of view we would live in a much better world uh, than we live in today and and bloom is constantly gener- is, is 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 demonstrating uh in in small ways and big ways in small ways uh he's at the pub why is he at the pub because he's seeing martin coming martin cunningham about the dignam family fund uh he then uh, after this this episode will go and visit mrs dignam and visit then uh mrs purefoy the mina purefoy in uh, or mina i guess you say uh in in the, in the maternity hospital in oxen of the sun where you know the young male medical student are kind of mocking and, and carousing. So so Bloom is is he's kind and helpful and he's constantly thinking about civic problems, right? Whether it's the foot and mouth disease that they're talking about, which is, you know, blighting their 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 or, cattle. Or how the city's tram service the might tram be improved, service. or endowment at birth. Endowment at birth, right? Even where to put the advertising, right? He's looking at the the, the river. Uh, so he's constantly thinking about the life of his city and he's deliberating, right? The 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 nameless narrator is you know is making fun of Bloom with his but don't you see and but on the other hand, but these are exactly the kinds of mental habits and capacities we want mm-hmm. we want citizens to have. And even his little negotiation with Joe Hines. Joe Hines owes him money. Uh, he he's helped Joe Hines get get paid earlier in the day by directing him to the cashier at at the at the newspaper. And Joe Hines conveniently forgets to pay back Bloom his money. And Bloom sort of gently says, "Oh, you know, don't worry. Uh, you can wait till the first of the month. This is in 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 Cyclops now. But if you could help me with Miles Crawford, right? So these are the kinds of little negotiations and little compromises that that make a democracy, right? And and Bloom knows how to do it, and he knows how to do it without theorizing about it he just does it he even sees good in his adversaries this is what we've lost the habit of doing in a, in a polarized time where we're just at, at constant tribal warfare with each other even when the citizens you know athletic abilities comes up a uh, bloom says oh didn't you know that he was a great you know he the citizen was a great uh, was a great athlete so um you know whether it's in little things like his love of tennis uh versus the violence of boxing or, or big things like you know helping uh, to, to speak up for uh for peace and love in a time where there was war and hatred and 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 not drinking 
and not playing and, along with that game playing, either. And not playing along. And, and so, and to what extent is that? Is he just saying, you know, I don't want to drink, I don't want to get drunk like you? And to what extent is he saying, I just actually don't want to be a part of this masculinity? And, and this ties back to something you were saying before about um, him and his wife, right? So he's now in the in the middle of 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 his wife's having an affair, literally at this moment. Um, and why does he not respond to that in the way most husbands at this time would have responded with violence? And, st- and still would. And, st- and still would today. And, and Budgeon has this, has this great quote. He says, you know, that, that Bloom, and this is Budgeon, was talking to James Joyce and drinking with James Joyce at, you know, at, in Zurich as he was writing this chapter. And Joyce was reading this chapter out loud to Budgeon. Budgeon says, Bloom is in a way more Asiatic than European. He refers to Gandhi and Tolstoy. Uh, the theory that is that if you resist what you regard as injustice and oppression with violence, you will be forced to create the same apparatus of violence as the unjust oppressor. And the end will be not that the oppressed man becomes a free man, but that he in his turn becomes an oppressor by virtue of his possessing the necessary instruments and the accompanying state of mind. Bloom does not want to create another cycle of violence. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I have a question for you, Lex. Um, And indeed for you, Alice, but I know Lex is particularly interested in in the sort of the democratic um, aspect of this book. Um, through a kind of um, serendipitous um, series of events, I last week interviewed uh, Professor Helen Thompson um, of Cambridge University for the, uh, the Bookshop podcast about her new book, Disorder. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's an absolutely fascinating book, and I really would encourage our listeners to go and listen yep. to this interview. But one of the strands of her story, and this is basically a story about how we got to where we are today, concerns the democratic strand. She gives a geopolitical strand, she gives an economic strand and she gives a democratic strand. And she talks about the sort of the, the, um, the democratic side to our politics. And this, I put in mind of this when um, Bloom is asked what a nation is mm. in this chapter. Mm. And he says a nation is the same people living in the same place. Which seems kind of you know, a little simplistic and he's like kind of making it up, but... It seems a little simplistic. And also, I was put in mind of this after reading Professor Thompson's book, is it seems... To be too. It's a little simplistic, and also I was put in mind of this after reading Professor Thompson's book. Is it seems to be two answers in one? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because one thing that she says is that the, the the concept of democracy, our modern democracy, evolved at the same time as our concept of nationhood. Exactly. And exactly. Because democracy, in order to function, requires a concept of the people. Mm-hmm. And because it evolved at the same time as the concept of the nation, mm-hmm. essentially the concept of the nation came to be broadly kind of fused. fused with the concept of the people. And this is the problem we're living through right now, right? Is that the, 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 the problem with a continental or a, 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 a political community of millions of people is that you need these big stories, these stories of nationhood and grandeur and, you know, the great German past, the great British past, the great Italian past. And, and the problem with those stories is they can be manipulated. They can be brought out of hand and people are no longer looking at how to make the tram system better and how to fight the foot and mouth disease in their city, but rather how do I restore the greatness, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and the, the, the natural result of these 18th century revolutions and the systems they created was not democracy. They were republics and republics were, were created to, 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 um, uh, for a ruling class to govern. 
right? The people do not govern in what we call democracies. The people vote for other people to govern. And this is a, a very simple but very important point, right? That from any, you know, Greek point of view, this, we're living in oligarchies. And yet, right? And yet this is the system that we, that we feel compelled to defend. Um, we think it's, as Winston Churchill said, it's, you know, better than all the others, but it's not yet a democracy. And I think what, what Bloom and what Joyce are, are telling us is that democracy is not about the, the, the big story or not only about these big stories of huge communities. It's about what you do every day. And by building on this kind of kindness and curiosity that citizens can show towards one another, we have the, the ability to for citizens to really rule and not with perfect knowledge. Um, Bloom is not, you know, a perfect, you know, a, a, a omniscient character. He still doesn't know the difference between uh, the light refracting and reflecting and absorbing. It's okay, right? It's that if you can organize a community in the right way, and cities are much better at this than, than nations, um, you can create an intelligence that, that's greater than the sum of its parts. And so Budgeon has this great quote that I, I, that I just want to finish with here. Joyce is more a Dubliner than an Irishman. His form of patriotism is that of a citizen of a free town in the Middle Ages. He has told me, he's getting you know firsthand <laughs> what Joyce thinks about this. He has told me that he would rather be burgomaster of a city like Amsterdam than emperor of any empire. For a burgomaster is somebody among people he knows while an emperor rules over unknowable people in unknown territories. And and this is, I think, you know, the heart of what democracy could become. If we learn from this chapter, from the, the one-eyedness of the citizen and, and his, his cronies, and the two-eyedness of Bloom and what that uh, makes possible for us, then I think, and only then, democracy has a future. Okay, there's so much... Uh... We could have um, talked about it in this chapter, but that feels like the perfect place almost on which to leave it. But I know, Lex, you have one noticeable you'd like to give us. So every June 16th, when, in the last couple of years, we've gathered here at Shakespeare and Company, um, and we've read parts of this chapter, Cyclops, uh, because I love it so much, and I think it's it's it, it's so, so current. And I want to dedicate this podcast, if I, if I may, Adam, um, to uh, one of our readers, um, at these Bloomsday celebrations of Shakespeare Company, who is right now in Ukraine. Um, his name is Vlad Davidson. He's a good friend and a great journalist and writer and editor of the Odessa Review. And uh, I always bring in Vlad uh, to to read the end uh, where Christ was a Jew, right? Christ was a Jew like me. And uh, those of you who will be at Shakespeare and Company this year will hopefully, God willing, um, see Vlad safely back from Ukraine where he's been reporting on this terrible war um, and uh, with as much gusto and bravery uh, as Leopold Bloom uh, versus the citizens. So thank you, Vlad. This one goes out to you. Take care, everybody. Happy reading. A très bientôt.